I am Brendan Slocum, musician, educator, and author of the upcoming novel, The Violin Conspiracy. I'm here to tell you how music can save your life. Each episode, I talk with someone whose life was also changed by music. Since I'm a classically trained musician, many of my guests might come from that world too. But fair warning, I also rock out to the Beastie Boys and J. Cole and everything in between. So no matter what kind of music you listen to or play, you're in for an interesting, inspiring, and lively conversation. Thanks for joining me. My guest today is Nina Kennedy, world-renowned concert pianist, orchestral conductor, and award-winning filmmaker. All of these things are Nina Kennedy, but what you're about to learn is that she's also a really nice lady who's full of stories and experiences that I'm really, really excited to share with you today. She also holds a master's degree from Juilliard where she studied with Leonard Bernstein. Yes, Leonard Bernstein. Kurt Mazur, yes, Kurt Mazur also acted as her conducting mentor during his tenure as music director with the New York Philharmonic and the National Orchestra of France. For 12 years, Nina lived and performed in Europe, residing in Vienna, Cologne, and Paris. That's just the beginning. You're going to love this conversation with my new friend and auntie, Nina Kennedy. Here we go. All right. How is it uh, that you got started? Now, I understand that you began piano at age nine. How did you get started? And was there a particular person or an event that inspired you to want to play? After a while, I was just able to go to the piano and just pick out whatever it was they were playing. You know, I would hear the same Mozart sonatas every week, or the same little Chopin pieces. So I was able to just go to the piano. And that kind of overwhelmed my parents, I guess, when they realized how well my ear was developed. But nobody knew at the time that my, my vision was so poor. I didn't get my glasses until I was nine. So um, I wasn't really reading the sheet music that was put in front of me. I could, if I heard it once, I could memorize it and play it mm -hmm. back. So they thought, you know, when I started with a teacher at age seven, they assumed that everything was fine because I was coming back with top grades, but nobody realized that I, I couldn't see the sheet music in front of me. Wow. So that took a while to develop that skill of, of sight reading. Wow. So you started prior to age nine. I don't... So you've been basically surrounded by music your entire life. My entire life, even in the womb. My mother was still <laughs> teaching lessons and I'm sure I felt the vibrations, you know, when she would practice... And when she was playing the piano, I, I came onto the earth with the musical experience already in my body. Wow, that is awesome. I wish that was me. Uh, <laughs> early on in your career, what was one of the most significant challenges you faced and um, how did you overcome it? Most significant challenges? Oh, there were so many. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> career wise well we may as well just uh bring up the racism that that's been a part of my my uh career and my life you know since the beginning i wasn't consciously aware of it when i was very small but um really by the time i got to the curtis institute that year there were three openings in the piano department and uh, 72 pianists came to audition for these three openings and i, I got one of them 
And the teacher I was assigned, evidently she had a reputation for not taking kindly to Black students. I, I didn't know about this before I got there. But um, a few times in the lessons, you know, she would just say something that would just floor me. Like, for example, just out of the blue, she said one day, what's it like to be oppressed? Wow. And I'm thinking, okay, I knew she was Jewish. So I'm thinking maybe she's trying to, to bring a, a connection between what I had experienced and what she had experienced. And she's my teacher, you know, mm -hmm. she has complete control over my grade. And, right, you trust this woman. Uh, right, right, supposedly. So I just made up something that I thought might, uh, might satisfy her. But by the end of um, that first year, she wanted to throw me out of the school. And all of us, all of the students there are on full scholarship. Also, during the entire course of the year, she hadn't allowed me to play any repertoire for her at all. Wow. She just forced me to play scales and arpeggios, and that's what she said all of her students could do, and, and she wouldn't allow any first-year student to play any repertoire. Well, I'm already college age. I'm 18. Mm -hmm. And, you know, competitions are coming. I need to prepare for these things. So secretly, I was preparing my own repertoire. I was playing concerts. And uh, she didn't know anything about it. And then, you know, the last lesson of the year, I played for her Chopin F minor ballade. And when I finished, I went straight through, you know, like a performance. And at the end of it, she said, I could kick you in the stomach. Wow. For those who are of you who are listening uh, and you can't see this, my eyes just got extremely wide. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I didn't know what to say to that. I just, at first I said, excuse me. And then uh, she said it again. I could kick you in the stomach. I never would have done this if I had known you could play like this. But she was the one who wouldn't allow me to play anything. Just because of perception. Right, right. It was, it was really a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. And I don't know if you're, you're familiar with, with Sylvia Olden Lee, the opera coach. She was opera coach for uh, Kathleen Battle and Jesse Norman for a while. And uh, she was coaching at that time at the Curtis Institute. And she had filed formal complaints with the administration that there were no black students who were being allowed to audition for the, uh, the Philadelphia Orchestra auditions. You know, every year they would, they would uh, listen to students play concerti. And there are no black students, even though there were two of us in the piano department. And um, she was just, in hindsight, it's clear to me that she was just bent on sabotaging my career. You know, she wasn't going to give me the opportunity to be on stage and, uh, and have my work seen. But at the time, I, you know, I wasn't prepared for something like this. And people don't want to tell young kids to be on the lookout for racists and be prepared for what they're going to do to you. But, you know, I, I wish somebody had prepared me a little more for um, what, I would, what I could expect. Because I really, I didn't know what to do. You know, I didn't mm -hmm. feel like I had any, any coping mechanisms. What did you end up doing? Well, at that time in Philadelphia, um, Natalie Hendaris was on the faculty at Temple University. And Natalie and my mother had been old friends from Ohio. So I was able to, um, to contact her and she accepted me into her piano class uh, at Temple. It was, a, it was really a, an issue of, of graduating on time, you know. And even then, Curtis didn't offer uh, a bachelor's degree 
they just offered a diploma. So she took me in and I was able to start as a sophomore and finished, you know, graduated on schedule <laughs> and with a, a Bachelor of Music degree. Wow, that is, wow, that's fascinating. I mean, it just, this is your teacher. This is someone who's supposed to nurture you and nurture your talent and push you to succeed. And it seemed like she was doing the opposite. Right. Well, it's unfortunate that it seems very few of these instructors are questioned on their attitudes toward Black students. You know, and she was very old and she carried some of those ancient ideas. And also with, you know, with classical music, there's always this issue of funding. And if some of these older patrons might be offended by a Black student or, you know, all of that old stuff. That is a fascinating story. And wow, I'm, that's, wow. Everybody has at least one person whose interaction, like, totally changed you and put you on the course that you're currently on, whether in a positive way or a negative way. Who was that person for you? First person who comes to mind is uh, the conductor, Thor Johnson. He had been the music director of the Nashville Symphony for many years, and he was also the, uh, the music director of the World Youth Orchestra at the Interlochen mm -hmm. Arts Academy. He was the first conductor who booked me as a soloist for the Nashville Symphony. And that was when I was 12. Amazing. My parents had planted the seeds, you know, for me to become a concert pianist. It was what they had both wanted to be. And they felt that they hadn't had the opportunities when they were young. And then um, I remember when, uh, when Andre Watts came to Nashville, performed with the Nashville Symphony, it became very clear that this is what was expected of me. Mm -hmm. And this is what I should prepare myself to do. So I auditioned for him at Interlochen, where my father was on the faculty, on the piano faculty. And then he listened to me again in Nashville and um, invited me to participate in the, one of the Nashville Symphony summer park concerts that they gave in, uh, in Centennial Park. Mm -hmm. I did the, um, the Rhapsody in Blue. And that concert had an audience of over 4,000. It was covered by the news. I mean, the news was covering the concert because it was Nashville Symphony and Centennial Park. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they had this 12-year-old this soloist, local soloist, was also, you know, part of the story. So, and I, I found out later that I, I was the youngest piano soloist with the symphony up to that point when that concert happened. You said that your, your parents... Um basically pushed you to take the track of a concert pianist. Did you ever like have conversations with your parents as to why they were never able to maybe fully explore that track for themselves? Well, there again, it's that delicate dance you do with, um, with the next generation, not wanting to discourage them, but at the same time, they couldn't really, you know, they couldn't really explain why they ended up where they did without talking about racism. Right. And also the fact that they were both on the faculty at Fisk. My mother had joined the faculty earlier than my dad did. Um, she had been the piano accompanist for the Fisk Jubilee Singers when their director was John W. Work III. And my father had been touring as the piano accompanist under Mrs. James A. Myers, 
He was directing the group earlier, like in the 1940s. He arrived as an undergrad and then went to Juilliard, and then his teacher at Juilliard was the one who actually sent him back to Nashville to uh, first um, pursue that position as the piano accompanist for the Jubilee Singers, and then he joined the faculty later in the 1950s. And it was John Work III who, uh, who appointed him to succeed him after he, uh, he was retiring. But the, you know, I would get these little stories about my mother not being allowed to perform in certain venues and then my father not being allowed to go places. In fact, my father had heard Rachmaninoff live when he was on tour in rural Georgia in 1932. Wow. And at that time, you know, he had to sit in a segregated balcony with his mother and they weren't allowed to sit on the main floor. So, you know, I'd, I'd hear little stories about that and I, and I could tell more by what wasn't said mm-hmm. about how much the racism had affected my parents. You know, my mother was very angry about the opportunities that she felt she'd been denied. Even at Fisk, you know, the budgets were so small and she was really ahead of her time when it came to feminism. You know, there were very few women on the faculty then, and she was hardly being paid what she deserved. When both of them were on the faculty at the same time, I guess it was believed that since they were the same household, you know, that she didn't necessarily need the same level of salary that my father had. I mean, it was all, and she was doing all of the work for my father, you know, writing all of his letters and and making all of his political decisions it forced me to, to look into what really happened. Uh, so you, you took it upon yourself. Right, right. I've done two documentaries about both of them, and there's a lot of historical material. It's very delicate, because like I said, they, you, you don't want to discourage kids, but at the same time, they need to be prepared for what they're going to face. You know, I am so glad you said that. It's the, a lot of people shy away from that, that fact. And I think it actually is a detriment to people because you you do need to know it is delicate, but you know it's it's one of those things that it's going to happen, and you need to know how to deal with it. You're absolutely right. Wow, you were talking earlier about uh, we started to get into this. Now, now we can do it. Uh, what is your perception of the climate for uh, musicians of color like yourself and and myself? Is there a divide between? white musicians and non-white musicians in classical music? Ooh, child. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here comes the Tennessee. Here it comes. (laughs) It's a mess. I don't know if you saw the the New York Philharmonic from Central Park. And that started a dialogue on Facebook about the absence of African-Americans in the New York Philharmonic. Now, I hear that Anthony Gill has been appointed first chair clarinet, but he's the only African-American, as far as I know, in the New York Philharmonic. And he was the only African-American in the, uh, in the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra when he had that post. And I just wonder where this, this idea comes from, that having one is enough. Uh, you got you to be careful with the, with the dialogue because people of color, just that phrase do, doesn't cover it because 
Many will say, well, look at all of the Asians we have, you know, true. look at all of yeah, the Korean musicians. And there are people of color. And so we're, we're being specific about African-Americans. Yes, because, let's do that. Yeah, you can't say that you have an adequate number of people of color when you don't have any African-Americans. And my question has always been, how can they call themselves the New York Philharmonic, representing the city of New York, <laughs> and not have any African-Americans? Exactly, yeah. It's kind of crazy. And I hear, you know, I'm not an orchestra player, but I hear from uh, some players that, uh, you know, that part of the problem is these lifetime contracts. You know, you, you audition, you get a position, and, and that's it. You know, they're not going to have another opening for 50, 60 years or whatever right. the, you know, whatever the lifespan is. And, okay, that's, that's not fair when you consider the number of African-Americans who haven't had opportunity up to this point to be appointed, even to audition. You know, and so many people talk about the screen. They perform, they audition behind the screen. But everybody knows who they are before they get to the audition. Right. You know, they know what schools they go to. They've seen the pictures. You send articles, any reviews that you may have had, and all of that material. They can Google you. All of that material is there. So they know who's coming to audition for them. So it's and, not really a blind audition. Right, right. Right. Yeah, so it just seems like it's just been another justification for the exclusion, you know, referring to the blind auditions. There again, as I mentioned before, the, the funding is always an issue. And uh, really, it just seems like you're not going to see any change unless you hit them in the pocketbook and make yeah. it clear that you're not going to get your funding next year if you don't do something. You know, Alan Gilbert had all this time as a music director to appoint some African-Americans. And it's, it's not his issue. You know, even back when Kurt Mazur was music director, you know, we were after him to hire some African-Americans. What do you think an adequate solution would be? Well, I've always advocated a, a mentorship program, you know, or an apprenticeship program where African-American kids can come in, participate in the rehearsals, you know, along with the full orchestra, or if some of the members want to, you know, uh, be excluded from those programs, but to, just to begin to make those personal contacts with other players and to register your pre your presence with the organization so that they, you know, they have your name and your info and they notify you when there are auditions or openings, you know, for some of those people who have those lifetime contracts to siphon out some of that time so that some openings are created for some fresh blood to come in. It's a constant struggle. It's enough to just prepare your repertoire you right. know, and to be able oh, definitely. to play it well and to, and to deal with the nerves and, you know, going on stage and all of that. That's enough for one person. So there needs to be some other mechanism in place to make sure these kids are looked out for. And even back when when Kurt Mazur was the music director with the New York Philharmonic, we had started through the African-American Juilliard alumni. We had started a letter-writing campaign asking the Philharmonic to employ some African-Americans. And, um, of course, they got nowhere. We didn't even get a response. But at least, you know, we, we made it clear that we are not satisfied 
with right. a lily white orchestra. And mm-hmm. uh, you can't call yourselves a New York Philharmonic if no people of color, no African Americans, not just people of color. You have a relationship with Maestro Masur. Would you talk about it a little bit? Yes. Well, while he was music director, I had signed up in the, uh, the conducting apprenticeship program. So I worked with him. This was an official program through the New York Philharmonic. We were able to sit in on the rehearsals and we had to, of course, acquire our own scores. So I have a, a library of orchestral scores and I uh, would sit in on the rehearsals and afterwards we would be able to discuss, you know, any questions we might have had with him privately in his office. And then when I moved to Paris several years later, it turned out that he was music director of L'Orchestre National de France. And I was just able to pick up where I left off. You know, there's always stuff you can learn about conducting. And he was, he was happy to teach. Mm-hmm. You know, by that point, he just wanted to share his knowledge as much as he could, you know, with anyone who wanted to know. How intimidating is that? That had to be intimidating. (laughs) Well, you know, maybe with the conducting, since I had observed my father as director of the Jubilee Singers, I I remember just how important it is to, to hone your skills when it comes to physically expressing to your audience, in my father's case, a group of singers, but in Maestro Mazura's case, the, uh, the orchestral players, and just conveying to them what sound needs to come based on how you move. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's so very different from playing the piano. I mean, you have, you have to have similar you know, musical outlook, but at the same time, they're responding to how you move. They're even responding to your facial expression sometimes. So, and for a woman, it can be a very different thing to get up in front of a group of men. Oh, wait a minute now. <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> okay. It's this almost sounds like it. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I tell you, as I've gotten older, also, it's a different thing being that in front of a group of men as opposed to being a younger woman. You know, as an older woman, I can flirt a little more and have it not be so <laughs> intimidating. <laughs> you know? For a younger woman, I mean, I've seen several cases with older male orchestra players who just weren't going to do what a woman said. Wow. You know, regardless of how right she was, it just didn't matter. They just weren't going to take instruction from a female. That and is then, unbelievable. What do you do about that? You know, do you fire wow. this player who has one of these lifetime contracts? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like, okay, well, he didn't, he didn't do a diminuendo when I asked him to, so what are you going to do about it? I don't know. Uh, what do you want me to do? Wow, that is insane. It is. It is. It's a very delicate, delicate dynamic, you know. Got to tread lightly. Oh, my goodness. Wow. I, am, I tell you, <laughs> Nina Kennedy is educating me today. This is fantastic. <laughs> I love it. Another question, what is your absolute favorite thing about music? I mean, you provide entertainment for people, but what what does it do for you? Ooh, well, there's so many aspects of music making. I mean, there's the one when I'm on the piano and actually practicing or performing, you know, there's always that satisfaction when you can execute a passage that's been difficult, you know, or when you can do it in performance and really 
you know, really give it to them. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> they, oh, can, yeah. they can hear when you've put in a lot of time and, and effort. But there are other moments, you know, there's if you're in the audience for a live concert, which we haven't been able to do lately since COVID, but in listening to recordings, you know, some of my most gratifying moments musically are just when I'm sitting here in my living room, just listening to a, a recording of a Wagner opera, for example. You know, you can fully get into the emotional sweep just uh, in, in private, you know, in a way that you couldn't necessarily <laughs> react in, the, in a concert hall. I mean, in some moments in some of those operas, you just, you just want to holler. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, you do. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I've just, been there and I've done that. <laughs> yes, I'll say hallelujah or something, you know. <laughs> it just hits you in the gut. But at least when you're at home. You can do that, mm-hmm. <laughs> not disturb <Yeah>. anybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing the power of music, right? It's a fascinating thing. Was there ever a time where you were confronted, and you you spoke about this a little bit, confronted by someone who didn't understand what it was that you were trying to do, and uh, if that did happen, you know, how did you deal with it? Oh, all the time, all the time. <laughs> I remember uh, practicing for an engagement. I think I was. I was like doing Rachmaninoff, Paganini variations, I think, in uh, with one of the orchestras in Tennessee. And my manager was with me at the time, and she was kind of new to the music business. She came from the pop world, but she came with me to uh, to one of my rehearsals. And after rehearsal, I was just going over some passages that were a little difficult in the rehearsal and just going over my own part. And um, she said to me afterwards, why do you put so much time into this? Well, you know, for her, as far as she was concerned, her priority was the check. Right. (laughs) And the check wasn't (laughs) going to change one way or the other, whether I got this passage right or not. But for me, I I just said to her, you know, it's my responsibility to do this correctly and in a way that's moving, you know. It's more than just notes. Right, right. And yeah, some people some people are just only concerned about the check, and there really isn't much you can say to them, you know. And, and it's it's hard to explain to them. I, I've I've stopped trying to explain because <laughs> it really <laughs> seems like if they're just not going to get it, you know. And at times when you wanna you wanna convey something that you know has moved you in your rehearsal, and you want to be able to convey that to your audience and um, some people just aren't going to get that and that's okay that is okay you know it's their loss it's totally their loss totally (laughs) (laughs) i have a few more questions for you well first before i ask you the next question give me one piece of advice that you would like to share with any budding musician um you can never have too many friends to keep them posted with what you're doing. Now, if you're a soloist like I was, uh, it's a very isolating field. You know, you spend most of your time by yourself practicing. And there are times when, you know, I remember if I didn't have uh, an adequate number of concert dates or if I wasn't making an adequate amount of money, in my mind, you know, I really didn't feel like I was accomplishing what I had wanted to accomplish and I wasn't feeling very good about myself. And it's important to keep people informed of what's going on, regardless of how many concerts you're playing. 
you know, or how much money you're making. It's important to, you know, let them know about your, your plans, you know, to um, organize, even if it's not about concerts, even say, for instance, if you're doing some music videos, you know, or if you're doing some recordings, or if you've written something, or you're sort of blogging, you know, just to keep people informed about what's happening because everybody can't be in the audience for your performance, but they need to know that this is what you're doing. And also when it comes to funding, because uh, musicians can struggle financially. And there are people out there, you know, at least here in the United States, it's uh, tax deductions are possible for donations to musicians. So uh, the more people who know what you're doing, the better off you'll be. That is fantastic advice. I mean, that's great. Why didn't somebody tell me that like 20 years ago? <laughs> well, it's never too late. You can always start. <laughs> okay. Your favorite composer? Ooh. Well, that depends on the genre. For operas, my favorite composer is Wagner. Okay. Any, let me guess. Uh, I'm going to guess. Uh, go to Damerung. Oof. Well, yeah, I like. Gretchen Demerung a lot, <laughs> a lot, but Gretchen Demerung and Tristan are up ah, there. Okay, up there, of course. Towards yeah. the top. Mm -hmm. But uh, for piano, um, between Rachmaninoff and Chopin. Mm, very nice. And for orchestral repertoire, Brahms or Mahler, they're right up there. Whoa, that is heavy <laughs> duty. That is straight up heavy duty. Brahms, Mahler. Oh, man. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Okay, okay, I gotta ask, which Brahms? If you say one, I'm going to stop this interview. No, I'm just kidding, <laughs> just kidding. Well, first symphony, I actually, I haven't conducted it yet, but that's definitely on, in my, on my bucket list. To get a contract to conduct the first symphony, I would really love to do that. Well, so all of you listening, uh, Miss Nina Kennedy is open to do Brahms one. Maybe I can sit in and play violin. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, we'd have a blast. Yeah, we would. And, and you know what? You wouldn't even have to flirt. I do exactly what you asked me to do. <laughs> you want that Dominion You got it, Miss Kennedy. It's right there. Here he comes. Here he comes. <laughs> I need to stop. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, okay, I'm going to flip it on you for a second. I would like for you to ask me a question. Hmm. Hmm. Tell me... When you first realized that being black and a violinist was a problem. Oh, ouch. Okay, you are going right for the jugular on that one. <laughs> Let me see. I'm glad I'm sitting down already. All right. Being black and a violinist was okay. Had to be when I was in college. I was playing in a quartet and, you know, we would get together and, and play at weddings and receptions and everything. You know, that's how I paid my rent in college. People would come in and listen to us to see, okay, yeah, sure, we'll have you come and play at our wedding. And one particular instance, the cellist in our quartet was like, yeah, let me meet with these people because it might not be a good idea if they saw you. I'm like, okay. I'm not, why? Do I not play well? Do I smell bad? What is it? No, it's just, you know, it's probably going to be best if they don't see you. I was like, okay, I get it. 
you know, it, it, it stung a little bit, but it was eye-opening. It was very eye-opening. And as sad as it was, it was the truth. It was the honest truth. And um, from that moment on, you know, I really had to be aware of other people's perceptions. You know, it wasn't enough that I could play all the notes and, and make this beautiful music and make your daughter's wedding, you know, a glorious event. That wasn't enough. It was, okay, you look like this, so that's going to be a problem. Okay, yes. Nina Kennedy just brought that one home. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you a short story. You know, uh, Ryan Speedo Green, the baritone who was featured on 60 Minutes last season. Now, now he's living in, in Vienna. And he's a star in Vienna. He can hardly walk the street. But I met him a few years ago, and uh, he told me a story of, you know, just, just coming off of the stage at the Metropolitan Opera. And this was when the... Um, Rehearsals were open to the public and uh, usually elderly white people. But he had just come off the stage and he was walking through the hall and this old white lady came up to him and said, um, excuse me. And he thought, you know, she, she was going to compliment him on his singing. And she said, um, the, the light in the ladies' room on the third floor is out. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of stood there not knowing what to say. <laughs> oh and then he just said, okay, thanks for letting me know, or something like that. In that voice. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. It's incredible. It's just incredible. And and you know, sad to say, but luckily that generation is dying out. So you know, it's it's funny. People people hear hear stuff like this and, and they don't realize this is this really happens. It really does happen. Yeah, we have to live with it. Wow. Okay. Last question. Well, first, thank you so much for doing this podcast and doing this interview. I, it has been my absolute pleasure just to sit and listen to you. It's been phenomenal. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, my, oh, my pleasure is mine. Did music save your life? I would say it had to. I mean, it's it's hard. I, I just don't remember a time when there wasn't music in my life. You know, if I was hearing it in the womb, it's just, it's always been there. Um, now, the challenge has, has been to, to turn it into something lucrative. <laughs> you know, that's, that's always been the challenge. But, and spending time abroad has been really helpful. Just because the, the audience is so much bigger, primarily. You know, if you're a classical musician, you receive all kinds of respect over there. And especially being American. That gives mm -hmm. you another, you know, exoticism or something. But they really, uh, they, a woman told me once, um, Olive Moorfield, who was a soprano here in the United States uh, and then had a big career over in, in Germany. She was married to the ambassador from uh, Barbados to Austria. And uh, she said, when she talked about Andre Watts coming into town, she said, Oh, they just love him so much. I thought they were going to take him over to the town hall and stuff him and stick him on a statue. <laughs> <laughs> she can't walk the streets. And save for Jesse Norman, she couldn't walk the streets. And they, they were wow. superstars over there. And I came back to the States, you know, and I started doing these documentaries. And I did the first documentary on my dad. And that was doing the film festival circuit. Also, at that time, that was when... Barack Obama was running for president. So I made the decision just to 
plop myself back here in the United States. But I'm feeling after this COVID business is over, it's time to go back again. Yep. It's just the, you know, the audience isn't, ah, it's not, it's not what it should be. Let's say not yet. Not yet. Yeah. Not yet. Yeah. Well, maybe if some of these orchestras open their doors and we're, you know, we're reflective of the society at large, they might just have a larger audience. Wouldn't that be interesting? Uh, you know what? From your mouth to every ear out there, there you go. <laughs> Where can we find um, some of your materials, some of your, your documentary, your book? Where can we find that? Uh, well, I guess the easiest way is to, uh, you can go to nashwithnina.tv. The book is called Practicing for Love. And um, in fact, it's a Lambda Literary Award finalist for 2021. The second book is coming. There, there are three books of memoirs altogether. The second one is Practice What You Preach. It'll be out within the next month. And then there's a fourth book of letters from my maternal grandmother to her parents in Ohio. This is while she was traveling with the Fistubilly Singers as a teenager in Great Britain. So these are from 1900, 1900 to 1903. That'll be the fourth book. What else? There's, there's the Noshing with Nina show that I host here in New York. Those links are they're available on nashwithnina.tv. Also, the music videos. There's a, the latest music video is um, of Schumann's Wiedemann that we recorded over in Vienna. But if you Google me, Nina Kennedy, and pianist, all of that should come up. I would like to personally thank you. I have learned a great deal. My respect level has just jumped up. It's way past anything that I can measure right now. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to meeting you in person one of these days. Absolutely. And I'll put you on my list for my, my Brahms orchestra. Done and done. You know, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll even play second violin. I'm good with that. <laughs> oh, you might be my concert master. You never know. Thank you very much, Ms. Kennedy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been an incredible experience for me. And I hope our listeners have enjoyed it as much as I have. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Keep in touch. How Music Can Save Your Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, hosted by me, Brendan Slocum. Produced by Hannah Ray Leach and mixed by Eric Coltnow. Special thanks to Jeff Kleinman and everyone at Anchor Books for their help with this podcast. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about me and my novel, The Violin Conspiracy, check out my website, brendanslocum.com. I'll see you next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.